If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheets are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheets bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheets for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212. This is the World According to Zig podcast for May 5th, 2019. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of the show where you can still get the truth about the news of the day from a conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. That's where you can find all of the past episodes of the podcast, as well as most of the articles that I write for Mediate to keep you up to date on everything that's going on in the world. Much of that has to do with, obviously, the Trump administration and uh, that is why I need to mention that if you are interested in the latest news regarding President Trump, make sure you check out our other podcasts, which we do biweekly, usually on Sundays and on Wednesdays. You can find that by going to freespeechbroadcasting.com and clicking on the link there, or you can go to my Twitter page or the Twitter page of that particular podcast, which is individual, the number one pod. There's lots of other things to talk about, though including an update on what's going on with the Neverland, Leaving Neverland HBO uh, fake documentary, which we have been chronicling for the last several weeks, almost two months now. And uh, actually not quite two months. It just feels like it's been two, two Well, no, actually it's been two months. My gosh, it really has been two months. Wow, time flies. But it's been two months, and we've done a lot of shows on Leaving Neverland, and uh, there's some good news, actually, on that front. Uh, Number one, the interview that we aired in its entirety with Michael Jackson's criminal defense attorney, Tom Mesero, on last week's podcast, which if you have not yet heard it, I urge you to check out. Uh, That uh, on YouTube, the portion that we put on YouTube, which is only about two-thirds of it, now has 110,000 views on YouTube, which is pretty amazing because, to my knowledge, there's not been one media article about this. This is purely organic social media and uh, people who are interested in the truth of what really happened with that uh, fake documentary who have been spreading this and are very interested in what I believe to be the truth and what I think the facts back up as the truth. So you you can check that out. Like I said, the entire uh, interview 47 minutes is on last week's episode of the world according to zig podcast and there is that video portion which is on youtube now last week i mentioned and this was not known at the time of the taping that there was a vote being taken by a local uh, elementary school or middle school here in the los angeles area 
as to whether or not to keep Michael Jackson's name on an auditorium there. Now, Michael Jackson had very briefly attended this school. And what was interesting about this was that they were, instead of making an actual decision, they were going to leave this up to a vote, apparently among staff members of the school. And I, I think parents also had a say in this vote. And this made me very nervous because, let's face it, academia in general is incredibly politically correct. Virtue signaling is everything. We're talking about sex abuse allegations against uh, people who are alleging that they were basically the same age as the, as the kids that go to the school. And one other interesting thing I did not know at the time is that it wasn't just Michael Jackson who attended that school. One of those who also attended that school was Wade Robson, who was one of the two accusers in the Leaving Neverland fake documentary on HBO. And had I known that, I think my analysis would have been slightly different. And certainly, I think it's relevant when you consider the fact that, as it turns out, Michael Jackson ended up winning the vote. It was announced just hours after we did last week's podcast. And I was mildly surprised and, and very happy about that because, again, I've just become conditioned to believing that the truth almost never wins in any controversy. Uh, justice almost never prevails. No one's ever going to do the, the thing that is right or requires any courage at all because courage is dead. Principles don't seem to matter, and everyone just wants to get along and not be criticized. Uh, but the fact that Wade Robson went to this school I think is really key. And while it probably doesn't end the story, certainly if it had gone in the reverse, I referred to this as a potential contagion. You know, once people start taking down names and statues and what have you, it never ends because now everyone else who has the inclination to do that has cover for doing so. Oh, well, my gosh, a school that Michael Jackson attended in Los Angeles took down his name. So, you know, we can't do X, Y or Z or we need to end this or that. So that didn't happen. That's the good part. But the why this is even more significant than I thought at the time is that w- having Wade Robson goes, going there tells you a couple of things. One, this school had even more reason to vote to take down Michael Jackson's name because, after all, one of the two accusers attended there for a longer period of time than Michael Jackson did. But the really interesting thing, and this is purely speculation on my part, but I think it's informed speculation, is that let's do the logic here. Wade Robson is in his 30s, all right? So he attended this school 20, 25 years ago, all right? That means that there are still staff members who were at, at the school when Wade Robson attended who are there now. Now, my wife is a school teacher. <laughs> So she's an expert in the way that gossip works around a school. And it only takes two, maybe three staff members who remember Wade Robson and who spread the word among the other teachers. Look, I'm not so sure about this kid. <laughs> this, this story doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. He certainly never seemed to me like he was abused. And all I remember him talking about was how great Michael Jackson was. That's all it takes. And then that means that the rest of the staff is going to be far, far less inclined to go along with a vote like this, especially when, you know, let's face it, there's still a lot of Michael Jackson fans. There's, it will cost some money for the school to remove the name from the auditorium. And, uh, you know, the criticism that we're going to take 
while it might be somewhat significant, isn't going to be that big of a deal. My understanding, although I don't have the final tally, is that the vote wasn't even that close, which then goes also to my theory that somebody there remembers Wade Robson and is going to say, really? Ah, come on. I'm not sure I'm really buying this. I mean, or maybe it was even more emphatic than that. You cannot be serious! Um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe there were a couple of teachers there who felt rather impassioned that uh, Wade Robson was not somebody that we should be hanging our hat on here with, um, with regard to removing Michael Jackson's name from the auditorium. So that was good news. And that, I think, uh, bodes well for the future of the damage of leaving Neverland being at least somewhat mitigated. Oprah Winfrey, as I've always said, is the key to this whole thing. If it wasn't for Oprah Winfrey, none of this would be happening. If it wasn't for Oprah Winfrey, leaving Neverland would not have a force field of protection in the United States of America. That force field doesn't exist as quite as uh, strongly in Europe, where Oprah doesn't have nearly the same cachet. But in the United States of America, the media takes all their cues from Oprah. You don't buck Oprah. Uh, you know She's considered to be a patron saint. And so because Oprah Winfrey blessed this whole fiasco and sanctified the accusers, there's been no scrutiny of them at all in this country other than by people like me. And I'm not even sure who else other than me, maybe a couple other people in the United States, but not very many. And uh, and so Oprah really is the whole deal here. And Oprah did an interview with a Hollywood reporter this week, which I found fascinating. And if you read between the lines, I think is an indication that even she knows this whole thing's a fraud. The first thing she said to the Hollywood Reporter, and apparently this interview was not taped. If it was taped, there was not a, a, a tape of it that was released that I saw. It would appear to be a, an interview that was uh, simply you know, old-fashioned, uh, you know, verbal, and uh, the transcript was released. And at one point, Oprah Winfrey actually says, somewhat rhetorically, I wonder my, to myself why I did this. In other words, why I got involved with leaving Neverland. Which certainly sounds like someone who's regretting their, their actions. Like maybe this was a mistake on my part. Now, to the credit of the interviewer, who didn't do a very good job with the interview, but heck, nobody in the media does any good jobs with interviews because they're, you know, most people in the, in the media, they're not very smart. Uh, you know, let's face it, they're... And they certainly don't care about getting the truth, and they're certainly not going to make Oprah look bad because they're just thrilled to get the interview with Oprah Winfrey. But they did ask the question, so do you regret your participation in leaving Neverland? And, of course, Oprah said no to that. Uh, But then she goes into uh, what she calls the hateration that she has received. And this really drives me crazy. The hateration that she's received for uh, taking this stance on behalf of the movie. And she even, and this is really insulting on so many levels, but of course Oprah gets away with it because she gets no scrutiny. She even related the quote-unquote hateration she's gotten for supporting Leaving Neverland to what she got when she was part of Ellen DeGeneres coming out on her sitcom many, many years ago as being gay. And so that because she sanctified that, she got a lot of backlash. And that was, that was the most, quote-unquote, hateration that she had received, at least until leaving Neverland. Well, first of all, it is a huge difference between uh, vouching for someone 
and being part of a historic event where the first major star in a sitcom comes out as being gay and sanctifying two accusers who have no corroboration, accusing someone else of a crime who's dead, who can't even defend themselves. Those are two totally different things. Yet in her mind, they're the same because, wow, I'm getting criticism. And uh, I'm awfully insecure for a person who's a billionaire and world famous. You would think that you understand that comes with the territory. Uh, but in her mind, hateration discredits those who are criticizing. And this is the part that drives me bananas. I see this all the time on Twitter. People who uh, criticize uh, unpopular beliefs that they don't understand, don't have the facts for, as truthers. And you're just a, a member of a cult. You're, you're like 9-11 truthers or you're, you know, like Trump cult members. You don't accept the truth. And so you're just hating on me because I'm telling you a truth that you don't want to hear. Uh, that happens, but that's not happening here. And hateration is not proof that you're on the right side. It's proof that there are a lot of people who disagree with you. Now, why are they disagreeing with you? Are they disagreeing with you based on facts or is it based on emotion? And in my experience, this has all been based on almost all on facts and logic and not on emotion. So that was really infuriating that uh, Oprah relied on the hateration. I mean, if, if this was really a situation where she was in the right, she would be able to cite chapter and verse. No, here's why I did this. I did this because of this factor, that factor, or this uh, presumption or, or assumption or, or conclusion that I came to based upon the factual record. There's none of that. None. It's all, I've gotten hate, so I must be on the side of right because that's the way these things work. And then there's the, the statement that, to me, proves that she doesn't really believe the allegations or at least knows that they have, they're nowhere near credible or proven. And that is that she makes this bogus argument, which she's done in the past. She even did this during her, quote-unquote, post-game, post-fake uh, documentary interview that she did with the film director, Dan Reed, and with the two accusers, James Safechuck and uh, Wade Robson, she even says that this is not about Michael Jackson. Huh? What? This is not about Michael Jackson. This is bigger than Michael Jackson. This is about the topic of sex abuse and having people being able to come forward and tell their stories. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. What do you mean this is not about Michael Jackson? It's just flat out ridiculous. I mean, th this is all about Michael Jackson. If this was not about Michael Jackson, no one would give a shit. There would be no HBO documentary. You would not be involved. This, these are allegations that have huge impact on the legacy of a dead man and who cannot defend himself and who, who was found not guilty unanimously in a court of law where the allegations against him disintegrated. And, and frankly, this leaving Neverland thing makes me even more confident that that verdict was correct because the allegations in leaving Neverland are so preposterous. And so without corroboration. And so when you say this is not about Michael Jackson, that's effectively telling me you know that this isn't really the truth and that you're trying to come up with a rationalization for why you did this. Even if we're not right about Michael, we're still doing good because we're, we're promoting the cause of people telling their truths about sex abuse, even though it's not the truth. There is only one truth. You know that, folks, right? There is only one truth. Now, we can argue about it, but the idea that 
your truth uh, is somewhat somehow inherently credible or inherently valuable, even though it's bullshit, and even though you're trying to get money from it, and uh, and you're doing this in a in a, uh, in a film that is made by a guy with an obvious agenda, uh, that ought to matter. But apparently in Oprah's world, it doesn't. So it's okay in her world, I guess, to uh, accuse people of things they, there's no evidence that they did if you think that it, it uh, furthers the greater good. And by the way, the greater good in this world might be herself. That, that's the biggest bunch of crap about the whole thing, is that uh, there's an indication to me that the person who really benefited here was her. And that that's why she participated in this, uh, because of the politics involved in this, the corporate politics involved in this. So that was the Oprah Winfrey interview, which I found to be quite telling if you read between the lines. But, of course, no one in the media does because they all worship Oprah and they're all a bunch of morons. Now, in a very similar subject, incredibly similar, which I've referenced many times in the past, people who know my career know that this has been a huge part of my life for the last seven or eight years. There was a major development in the so-called Penn State, Joe Paterno, Jerry Sandusky scandal. And that is that the former president of Penn State, Graham Spanier, one day before he was scheduled to go to prison for two months or jail or whatever it was, supposed to be incarcerated for two months, which on a totally bogus conviction uh, for a misdemeanor, not even a felony. One day, he was supposed to go uh, and be incarcerated on May 1st. He uh, was found by a federal judge to, to not be guilty. In other words, the conviction was thrown out. Now, it was thrown out on a technicality, true, but it's one hell of a technicality, right? If you're going to be thrown out on a technicality, this is a pretty good one. I'm I'm not one who's big into convictions being thrown out on technicalities. I'm a law and order conservative. But this was the quote-unquote technicality that got Graham Spanier, at least for now, to have his conviction thrown out and for him not to be incarcerated for two months for something that he clearly did not do because, frankly, there was nothing that ever happened to begin with. The technicality was this. A federal judge... It's important that this was a federal judge because in Pennsylvania, you're never going to get justice on this case because the entire state is literally invested, invested emotionally, psychologically, intellectually, financially, in every possible way in a myth. They're like five-year-olds with Santa Claus. They're invested in it. You're not going to change their minds. Even if you do change their minds, they're going to pretend that they don't believe it because it's in their interest to keep pretending. All right? So the, the reality is that a federal judge is the only person who could potentially see the truth in any of this. And a federal judge determined that, um, yeah, there's a problem with Graham Spanier's conviction, and it's a pretty big one. You see, the law on which he was convicted did not exist at the time when he was claimed to have committed the crime. Yeah, that's a problem. That's a problem. The law did not exist. And this is, this is a no-brainer, folks. This is not a matter of huge controversy. And, in fact, that's partially why, a big part of why, his d- defense lawyers had their heads so far up their asses, thinking that they were living in a normal world and that justice was going to prevail, that they didn't even put on a defense. They were so sure that this was going to get kicked out on appeal because of the fact that the law did not exist. 
for years later. Now, this was a law related to child endangerment and what the definition uh, of child endangerment is and what the obligations of certain people are uh, with regard to child sex abuse. The reality is that it is a technicality, and that's how it's being perceived, which I can't stand, because the reality is that Graham Spanier did nothing wrong. And, and Graham Spanier did nothing wrong even if Jerry Sandusky was the worst pedophile in the history of Pennsylvania, which he was not. But if, even if that was true, Graham Spanier should never have been convicted of this crime and should never be going to prison. And let me tell you why. Let's just pretend, let's pretend for a second that everything that uh, Jerry Sandusky was alleged to have done actually happened, which again, it didn't. But let's pretend that it did. Graham Spanier somehow got convicted as a esteemed former president of Penn State University. Very well respected. A lot to lose, by the way. He somehow got convicted because back in 2001, Mike McQuarrie, a then graduate assistant from Penn State University, allegedly saw Jerry Sandusky in a shower with a boy. He told Joe Paterno about it, his head coach, didn't go to the police. And he then told the athletic director and one of the senior vice presidents, Gary Schultz, who was also the head of the campus police, oversaw the campus police. He said nothing about a sexual assault to them. He described it as horseplay. He was uncomfortable about it. And that was effectively it. Graham Spanier never spoke to Mike McQuarrie. Graham Spanier never was told about an actual accuser, which did not exist because the kid in that episode for many years, excuse me, for many years afterwards said that nothing ever happened. Jerry Sandusky offered that accuser, or it wasn't an accuser then, that kid, a kid by the name of Alan Myers, who was almost 14 years old at the time, to speak to Tim Curley. Tim Curley, unfortunately, declined that offer because I don't think he thought anything had happened that was unnecessary. He didn't want to alarm the kid. He knew Jerry Sandusky. He knew he had this his weird habit of showering with boys, which was stupid, but in that time period was not seen as criminal and certainly not with someone with Jerry's background. He looked at these kids as his son. As, as, as He did not have any natural sons of his own. He ran this charity, which was revered in the community. And so Grand Spanier never spoke to any accuser. He never spoke to Jerry Sandusky. Now imagine this. You're the president of a massive university. There's someone who comes forward with Hey, I saw uh, a former employee. Jerry Zanesky's not even an employee of Penn State. I saw a former employee who has every right to be there in a shower with a boy. I thought it was inappropriate. I need to tell you about it. So Spanier never speaks to McQuarrie directly. He never speaks to Sandusky. He never even had a conversation with Jerry Sandusky to this point in his life. He never speaks to a boy. There's no accuser saying, Mr. Spanier, Jerry Sandusky did this to me. And Spanier says, okay, fine. I don't believe you. Go pound sand. That never happened. Nothing close to that happened. 
all Spaniard did was engage in an email conversation. And by the way, if you're going to do a cover-up for child sex abuse, let me give you some advice, folks. Maybe the first rule of thumb would be don't do your cover-up of child sex abuse on state-owned email servers of your employer. Probably not a great idea. But that's what you have to believe happened here. You have to believe that Graham Spanier, Tim Curley, and Gary Schultz, all three esteemed, highly accomplished, very well-respected, smart guys, decide that they're going to use Penn State email server, state-run university. Over email, we're going to discuss how we're going to cover up Jerry Sandusky's child sex abuse. For what reason, no one seems to have any fucking clue. Because he's a former employee. (laughs) So why the fuck they're doing this, no one knows. Why they're using state-owned email servers, no one fucking knows. No one wants to ask any of those questions. Instead, these emails get taken out of context 10 years later once the world thinks that Jerry Zanuski is this horrible, brutal, serial pedophile. And all of a sudden, what I believe is actually Spanier, Curley, and Schultz being too tough on Jerry Sandusky because they're going by the letter of the law. They're trying to go by the book. They're trying to protect. They're trying to balance the the notion uh, of his presumption of innocence, and they know that if this gets out in the public that the charity is going to take a huge hit. And they know Jerry. They know he's a goofball. They, they know he's got these weird boundary issues. They don't believe he's a pedophile because there's no evidence that he's a pedophile. And so they're just trying to figure out what the right way to go on this is. That's all they're trying to do. And Graham Spanier ends up getting somehow not just indicted, but ends up going to trial and gets convicted Again, not on any felonies, the felonies he was acquitted on. He gets convicted on a misdemeanor. Now, I attended this trial. And, in fact, I was, I've had a bizarre, as is often the case in my life, I've had a bizarre connection to Graham Spanier and that whole element of this case from the beginning. People will find it somewhat hilarious to know that the person who told Graham Spanier that he had been indicted on these charges was me. And in fact, I was the one who read him the indictment. And you're wondering, how the fuck did that happen? I don't even know how this happened. It happened because Grand Spanier was in Iowa uh, visiting some family. And for some reason, I don't know why his lawyers didn't do it, but he ends up calling me because I had emailed him to inform him that this had happened. He calls me and, you know, we had a relationship at that point because he and I had done some uh, informal interviews about what was going on, and he was my, he was my first clue that this whole thing was a sham, because I'm like, wait a minute, none of this story is making any sense at all. Anyway, so I, I was the person that told Graham Spanier that he had been indicted, and I have had many, many conversations with Graham Spanier, hours of conversations. Graham Spanier in 2013 to show you what kind of guy Grand Spanier is. I went on the Today Show and on CNN with Piers Morgan, 
to talk about my interview with Jerry Sandusky in prison. Three and a half hours. And at this point, I'm not even saying Jerry Sandusky is innocent at this point. I'm not even defending Jerry Sandusky at this point. I'm just defending Joe Paterno and Penn State. And I get murdered. I mean, I get absolutely slaughtered in the news media. Because they don't want this. This is not their narrative that they like. I'm a threat, and I must be destroyed. There was really only one person directly involved in all of this who expressed legitimate concern for me and called me when I got home from New York and was like, hey, are you okay? And that was Graham Spanier. Graham Spanier actually showed me that he's a decent human being. And by the way, he happens to be an abuse victim as a kid himself. And so I've gotten to know Graham Spanier quite well and gotten to like Graham Spanier. Now, Graham Spanier, I'll be very clear about this. I don't believe that Graham Spanier has ever said the words to me, I know Jerry Sandusky is innocent, but I'll tell you right now, I will bet anything I have that Graham Spanier believes that Jerry Sandusky is innocent. Everything about our conversations over the years has indicated this. And by the way, these conversations have been in person. They've been on the phone. They've been via email. I am quite confident that Graham Spanier knows, just like uh, I am quite confident that Gary Schultz knows. Uh, I don't know quite as much about Tim Curley, although I have been told indirectly that Tim Curley knows, and Tim Curley's testimony at Graham Spanier's trial, I think, was consistent, which I witnessed, was consistent with Tim Curley still to this day believing that Jerry Sandusky was innocent of all this, despite the the vast, vast, vast avalanche of bogus media coverage and the convictions in this case would indicate. So Graham Spanier knows, in my opinion, that Jerry Sandusky is innocent. And I am trying to prep Graham Spanier for this trial. And I uh, create a, a fairly large document, an expose, if you will, on what I'm presuming is going to be the one Sandusky victim who will testify against Graham Spanier because they need an endangered child, all right? They need someone who got endangered because Graham Spanier and Penn State didn't act more uh, dramatically against Jerry Sandusky in 2001. Well, I know that the only person at Jerry Sandusky's trial who testified that anything happened on Penn State's campus after... This 2001 date, which I still believe is wrong, I believe the real date was December 29th of 2000, uh, which is a key, key fact in all of this, and I believe our podcast has proven that beyond any shadow of a doubt. You can find more information out that, about that at our website, framingpaterno.com. But anyway, this is the, the time period in which this occurred. The only person who testified at Jerry Sandusky's trial that something happened on Penn State's campus <clears throat> that would be considered sex abuse and then testified to it uh, under oath in a court of law was so-called victim number five, a guy by the name of Michael Kajak. And so I, pre- I prep Graham Spanier and his lawyers on how to deal with Michael Kajak because Michael Kajak's story is total bullshit. And it was even more bullshit. I know it to be even more bullshit now than I did at the time. But I was going on purely the fact that his date kept changing. It was before 9-11, then it was after 9-11, and it makes, in the whole narrative, it makes no sense. And by the way, what he was claiming was, yeah, it was sex abuse, but it was the most mild possible form of sex abuse in the shower you could possibly imagine. Like, 
brushing up against a penis, and that was it, while in a shower at Penn State. Not defending it, but it's important to know what people are saying, what they're testifying to. So that was his testimony at Jerry's trial. But then his, his story totally changed. Uh, and the reason why it changed, his, his date totally changed, is because he needed an episode, at, and, the, and the prosecution needed an episode after the McQuarrie episode. Clearly afterwards, because they want to go after the Penn State administrators. So Kajak's story is clearly being manipulated by the prosecutors. And Kajak is indeed the person who testifies, just as I predicted, at Spanier's trial. And I've talked about this before, so I'm not going to go into all the gory details of it. But this uh, testimony by Kajak at Spanier's trial was beyond. It was just flat out ridiculous. Uh, beyond ridiculous. I mean, there was a speech given by the bailiff to the to the. Uh, audience, it was basically intended for me. <laughs> Everyone around was looking. They're talking about you, Ziegler, right? I mean, the, the warning anyone that they, if they say anything, they're going to be not just kicked out of the courtroom. They're going to be arrested. I mean, unprecedented. Nobody who's ever been in a courtroom has ever heard anything like this. They they uh, gave Michael Kajak uh, the the oath outside of the presence of the courtroom and the jury. They never said his name. They never said his name. They had a, a box of Kleenex put there at the at the podium, ready for him when he came in. I mean, they did everything but put put rose petals and a and a red carpet in his path. So he comes out, uh, and he's given every possible consideration, and his testimony is a joke. And this is under the prosecution's questioning. And they don't ask any details. They don't get into anything at all. He's wide open for all sorts of of cross-examination. He could have been destroyed even based upon what we knew at the time, which, again, we know more now. And even though I had prepped Spaniards lawyers, and even though I had screamed before the trial, I screamed on the phone at Graham Spanier. I cursed the I guarantee you Graham Spanier is a former president of Penn State, has never had anybody, and probably in his entire life, scream at him and curse at him like I did. Because I was starting to suspect that his attorneys were going to wimp out, that they were going to try to take the safe route here, and that he was going to get railroaded and convicted for something that he did not do. And, uh, and it turned out I was more right than I could ever possibly have imagined. Uh, because... Not only do, did they not attack Michael K. Jack, they didn't even question Michael K. Jack. And my understanding is this was all part of an, an agreement, an agreement that the defense made with the prosecution to allow Michael K. Jack to testify without cross-examination. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine? But that's the level of toxicity and fear and of absurdity in these kind of cases. This, this KJAC could have easily been destroyed. I have photos, which did not exist at the time. I have photos of Michael KJAC posted on Facebook by his wife of him in a, with a big smile on his face, his wife and their little baby daughter all posing on Facebook in T-shirts that say, Saturdays are for Penn State football. This is the one witness that supposedly proves the impact of the Penn State cover-up. And not only that, 
There are pictures he's posted on Facebook of his entire family getting together in his palatial mansion that he bought with the millions of dollars that he got from Penn State. All in Penn State garb, getting together to watch Penn State football games. Come on, people. Use your brains, especially when the story he's telling is totally inconsistent, makes no sense. And then what I also did not know at the time is, when he went to go get his money from Penn State, guess what happened? He had testified under oath at Jerry Sandusky's criminal trial that all Sandusky did was brush up against him with a penis in a shower, which in theory, theoretically, could have been a mistake, right? Well, then all of a sudden, when it's time to get the money, Michael K. Jackson, I have the documents that were leaked to me, and Ralph Cipriano my co-writer for this uh, Newsweek story that was supposed to be on the cover that got killed at the last minute, we, we have the documents that prove that Michael Kajak's story doesn't just change a little bit. Michael Kajak now all of a sudden claims to have been raped numerous times by Jerry Sandusky. Well, wait, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Hold on. So Michael Kajak tells Penn State something he did not say at Jerry Sinusky's trial under oath, did not say a Graham Spaniard's trial under oath. And, and, and this is happening in between those two testimonies. So why is he doing it? Well, because his lawyers and he have figured out that Penn State is paying based upon the nature of the allegations. So in order to get the big money, you need to say you were raped. So he's effectively either lying to Penn State for millions of dollars, which should destroy his credibility, or he's admitting that he perjured himself for some bizarre reason in Jerry Zanuski's favor in not one but two major criminal trials. The reality is it's all a scam. It's all a fraud. It's worse than leaving Neverland, if that's possible. And so when Graham Spanier didn't have his attorneys question Michael K. Jack and didn't even put on a defense, I was done. I was done with Graham Spanier. I I considered him a friend. I I was more concerned about his well-being than probably anybody else integral to this case. I liked him more than anybody else at one point. But uh, I was furious. I am still to this day furious because Graham Spanier was the last chance or had the last chance and had the best chance to actually at least put on the record in a court of law what really did and did not happen here. And because he wimped out and his lawyers wimped out, he got convicted. Now, it was only of the misdemeanor, and the jury foreman said immediately after the conviction that he thought that the jury had gotten it wrong. The jury foreman said this, and it was actually reported by some uh, major outlets. And still, the media portrayed this as, aha, see, we proved there really was a Penn State cover-up. Bullshit. Bullshit. Again, even if Jerry Zanuski was guilty of everything they claim, which he's not, Graham Spanier would not be guilty of anything. And so, when Graham Spanier's conviction was thrown out this week, I was conflicted. <laughs> I was, part of me was happy for the guy I used to be friends with, uh, Part of me, though, I almost wanted Grand Spanier to go to prison for his own fucking cowardice and the cowardice of his own attorneys. It's only two months. Frankly, also, if you go to prison, you're more of a martyr when this is all said and done. 
instead of getting off on a technicality. Now, on the other part of me, the part of me that, that wants justice, I, I feel good that Graham Spanard might not be going to prison, although we still don't know that for sure. Right now he's not. Uh, my first reaction was, well, where the fuck does Grant Spanier go to get the last seven years of his life back? Because for seven years, he's been the victim of a, an, a, an absurd prosecution beyond prosecutorial overreach. This was a witch hunt that Grant Spanier had absolutely nothing to do with. And it's continuing to this day because the attorney general of Pennsylvania, a guy by the name of Josh Shapiro, what a fuck rod this guy is. Oh, my God. He's worse than Bill Barr. He goes on Twitter after this uh, decision by the federal judge, rips the federal judge, totally lies about the facts of the case, totally lies about what the Pennsylvania Supreme Court had determined with regard to Graham Spanier. Complete lies. I don't think he knows anything about the case at all. Says that he will appeal the federal decision. I don't know on what basis since the law did not exist then, so you would think that that would be uh, pretty open and shut and relevant. But the state of Pennsylvania has to decide whether or not they're going to retry the case. I hope they retry the case. I really hope. that I, Even I don't think they're this stupid. I don't think the, that Pennsylvania can be this dumb, although this Josh Sapiro seems pretty fucking stupid. I, I would like, to, it would be so awesome of course, I'll just be disappointed again, but it would be awesome if they retried this case because he's already been acquitted on the felonies. This misdemeanor is is frankly bullshit to begin with. Once we've determined that the law doesn't even that, that he was convicted on doesn't even count because it didn't exist when this alleged crime took place. I have no idea, even in theory, what a court would find Spanier guilty of. I mean, even under the circumstances of that first trial, which was as bogus as possible, I mean, that was a completely bogus trial. It wasn't just Kajak's testimony. Curley and Schultz were coerced into testifying effectively against Spanier. By the way, the DA who tried the case, who was the niece of Mike Ditka. How, how weird is this? The, the DA who... T- who prosecuted Grand Spanier, was a woman who was the niece of Mike Ditka. And by the way, she looked like the niece of, the niece of Mike Ditka. <laughs> She's dead now. So I, they're going to have to get a new prosecutor. They don't have the law, at least not according to the federal judge. We have even more evidence that Michael Kajak is full of shit. Good luck. And also, by the way, the, the, the toxicity of this thing has faded a little bit. Not that much, but at least a little bit. So it might be even theoretically possible for, for someone to get a fair trial. And again, it's important to point out, Graham Spanier got acquitted of the felony charges despite the fact that this was a sham trial. So, look, I, even though I have a great deal of resentment towards Graham Spanier for how he let his lawyers fuck this whole thing up, and he didn't take my advice... Part of me is still very happy for him that at least he doesn't look like he's going to go to prison. But I do hope they retry this case because it will be embarrassing for the state of Pennsylvania. And I want to make one other point. And this is so frustrating. I mean, all this has been so frustrating. I mean, the last seven or eight years has taken at least 20 years off of my uh, life, at least. And and more than that, uh, psychologically. 
because this whole thing is a massive injustice. We have, we have done an interview with Gary Schultz. All right. We have done an, the only interview ever done with Gary Schultz on this subject. And it is blockbuster. Gary Schultz is really the person who is supposedly at the key, the, the, the heart of this whole bogus Penn State cover-up. We've done the only interview that he has ever done. It's an hour and a half long. It's blockbuster. But we have not released it yet for reasons that will become uh, clear once we do release it. Uh, now, when we release it, is it going to change the world? No. Should it? Absolutely. Because it is the best interview, the most uh, impactful interview, in theory, the most important interview I've ever done in my entire career. And we did it partially because um, I wasn't sure we were going to continue with the podcast for much longer, and I wanted to get it on the record, and partially because Gary wanted it for his kids because he wanted to get on the record as well so that his kids and other relatives knew that he was not part of some sort of child sex abuse cover-up. And, you know, hopefully later this year, hopefully it won't be that much longer, we'll be able to release that. It is my understanding that the facts related to that interview are going to be part of a a major book coming out in September by a very well-respected author uh, who is a media darling. Whether or not he'll be a media darling after this, I have no idea. But it's just so frustrating. It is so frustrating because uh, if, if anyone takes a look at this thing with even half a brain, they realize that the whole thing just falls apart, all of it. And by the way, once the cover-up falls apart, the case against Sandusky falls apart too because so much of the case against Sandusky was based on the idea that there was this bogus cover-up. So once you get rid of one, the other one falls apart too, especially when you got frauds like Michael Kajak as your only uh, witness in the case. Uh, it's just so frustrating, all of it. A uh, couple other things I want to mention before uh, this edition of the uh, World According to Zig podcast is through. The Kentucky Derby was rather uh, controversial yesterday, to say the least. I, uh, as those who have followed my career know, I have a connection to Louisville, was a television and radio host there for actually less than two years, although it's funny because people... People there think I was there for like 10 years. <laughs> I, I still do interviews with Terry Miners, who's the legendary afternoon host at WHAS at the station I worked for in, in Louisville. And I swear, I think that Terry, all these years later, thinks I was there for at least five years. Maybe longer than that. <laughs> but it was less than two years. It was just a very, 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 very memorable and impactful <laughs> two years especially since I got fired in a very dramatic fashion and then rehired by the same company uh, here in Los Angeles. Also, of course, I'm very good friends with the congressman from Louisville, Democrat John Yarmouth, who uh, I used to host a a TV show with on the NBC affiliate there. So I'm always interested in what's going on with the Derby. And for the first time ever, the winner of the Derby was disqualified immediately, or almost immediately, uh, because of a violation during the race. It happened one time prior, but that was well after the race was over and it was a drug issue. This was an issue uh, of maximum security. The horse that had finished first being deemed to have obstructed uh, with other horses in a way that broke the rules and may have influenced the, the outcome of the race. 
The second place finisher, Country House, ends up winning a 65 to 1 shot. By the way, imagine betting Country House as a 65 to 1 shot, and uh, he loses. And, you know, for 10 to 15 minutes, you think, oh, well, that's it. There's a good chance. There's a very good chance somebody bet that 65 to 1 shot and ripped up their ticket. Almost assuredly, uh, which would be a tragedy. Of course, there's the other side of this. Imagine being the person who bet the 65 to 1 shot who thinks, oh, damn, we almost won. And then on a disqualification, you end up cashing in on a 65 to 1 shot. That's amazing. But that putting that aside for a moment, there's the issue of whether or not the Kentucky Derby and the, and the stewards there did the right thing. Uh, on the Individual One podcast, I go into the, the uh, comparison between this and the way that uh, Bill Barr handled the Mueller report because there's some, there's some interesting and humorous similarities between the issue of, of condemning and convicting maximum security of obstruction without an underlying crime and determining that he should be completely disqualified, unlike the way that Bill Barr and, and Republicans in the House and Senate are referring to or looking at the entire issue of Donald Trump's obstruction of the investigation into Russia's meddling into the 2016 election. But again, more on that in the individual one podcast. What I find interesting about this is, you know, my my initial opinion on this was this is bullshit. I mean, maximum security clearly was the best horse. It wasn't that dramatic. Uh, he, he led wire to wire. He deserves to be the winner. And, but I'm not a horse racing expert. And there were a lot of horse racing experts who were saying, well, if this wasn't the Derby, this would be a pretty clear cut situation of a, of a disqualification. And as I thought about it more and I looked at it more, there were a couple things that stood out. The first is, and this stood out to me at the time. I mean, my alarm bells went off, but I didn't know how to connect it. When maximum security wins, he the jockey is immediately interviewed. That's the way they do it now. They, you know they've got a, a, an NBC reporter out on another horse. They catch up to the jockey and they need, immediately put a microphone in the jockey's face, and you know they want to get the that initial joyous reaction. And they got some of that, but the jockey said something that immediately to me went whoa 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 what's going on here. Again, I don't want to pretend that I immediately knew that this was going to be a disqualification, but I, there was a red flag. The jockey immediately – now, he's, you got to remember, here's a jockey who just won the Kentucky Derby for the first time. He's never come close to winning the, the Kentucky Derby before. Biggest moment of his life. And one of the first things he says is, my horse got spooked by the crowd going into the final turn. And I'm like, What? Huh? Why are you even mentioning this? Your horse never lost the lead. Effectively led wire to wire. You won by a, a fairly decent margin. Wasn't like by a nose or even by a neck. Why? Why, why is this the first thing you're saying? Well, <clears throat> it's now pretty clear why that's the first thing he was saying. Because he knew there had been a fuck up. He knew that there was going to be a problem. And he was trying to create a narrative for why his horse got into effectively into another horse's lane and obstructed the horse that was just behind him. Uh, now, 
you know, I'm, I'm not alleging some sort of a grand Bill Barr type of uh, conspiracy here, but people people know the game pretty well. They're street smart. Uh, this, this to me, was a, a situation where he was showing a consciousness of guilt in retrospect. He knew that he had screwed up or that the horse had screwed up, and he was looking for an explanation to put it out there into the ether. Now, at this point, he did not know that there was going to be an inquiry. Uh, but the inquiry was, was made, and it took for frickin' ever. I, I didn't understand why it took so long, regardless of the decision. Uh, but there's another element of this that that I think needs to be understood and that I didn't fully appreciate at the time. When you look carefully at the pictures of this, and they're all over the place online, it is a miracle that this was not a catastrophe. When, when maximum security bumps into or, or goes into the quote-unquote lane of the horse behind him, I have no idea how that horse behind him did not collapse and cause a domino effect of total catastrophe because you could have had multiple horses going down and having to be euthanized, and it would have been a, a total disaster in every possible way. We're talking about, at most, an inch or two. At most, an inch or two. Between this being you know, a race that the average person wouldn't even think that much about, and it being maybe the end of horse racing as we know it. So I think that needs to be taken into consideration. And so, uh, and the rules matter, and precedent matters, and just because it didn't end up in a catastrophe doesn't mean that there wasn't a violation. So I'm, I've kind of shifted my thinking on this. Was it close? Yeah. Uh, could it have gone the other way? Yeah. Uh, but you know what? I think the decision was probably the right one now. I don't know this. You know, I'm not an expert enough to know for sure. But gun to my head, it was probably the right call. And it showed a lot more courage than Bill Barr has shown in his adjudication of the Mueller report. I can assure you of that. But here's another thing, though, that's concerning to me if I'm the Kentucky Derby and if I'm horse racing. While this was a big deal, my sense is this wasn't nearly as big a deal as it should have been if the Kentucky Derby is still at the level it once was. In other words, when I looked at, for instance, Twitter. Now, I was expecting like the top 10 trends on Twitter to all be related to this disqualification at the Kentucky Derby. And it wasn't that big a deal. And it's not been dominating the news. And it didn't even dominate the sports news like you would have thought. I mean, this is the first time in history something like this has happened. It's highly controversial. And if I'm the Kentucky Derby, if I'm horse racing, if I'm Louisville, I'm a little concerned (laughs) that this didn't make as much of an impact as it probably should have as far as where the future is going on whether or not uh, horse racing is going to remain viable in the long run. There's already been concerns about that here in the Los Angeles area. The Santa Anita racetrack has had like 21 horses die uh, this season, something like that. Uh, No one seems to understand why. And we're living in a very different world now. And so I think horse racing is in trouble. I think uh, the Derby will always be okay because of the tradition of it. And it's so steeped in the American consciousness. 
But the the fact that the controversy didn't make a bigger deal, I think, is concerning uh, to to all those involved. Uh, I do want to mention that um, Tiger Woods is going to get the Medal of Freedom from Donald Trump tomorrow, which is like the ultimate conflicting event for John Ziegler, almost as conflicting as Graham Spanier not going to prison. That's how conflicted I am about Tiger Woods getting the Medal of Freedom from Donald Trump, who, by the way, is his damn business partner. Very few people have mentioned this, but technically they're business partners on golf courses. And so it's a massive conflict of interest for Donald Trump, and it's premature for Tiger Woods, who's only 43 years old. But, hell, Barack Obama destroyed that precedent a long time ago as far as who gets the Medal of Freedom. I speak more about this in the Individual One podcast, which you might want to check out. Uh, Finally, yesterday was May the 4th, which I had no idea until now is is known as Star Wars Day. The reason why I know this is Star Wars Day is because suddenly, and uh, quite without uh, preparation or warning, my six-year-old, soon-to-be seven-year-old daughter, Grace, has turned into a Star Wars fanatic. You remember Grace. Is Trump a bad guy or a good guy? That was when she was an innocent little girl, probably about three years old, who was still into uh, Disney princesses. Well, uh, technically, she's still into Disney, but she's now graduated from princesses, although technically there's still there's still a princess involved in Princess Leia, but now she's all into Star Wars. And yesterday, being May the 4th, and it's May the 4th be with you, ha ha, he he. Yeah, there we go. Um, all of a sudden now, I mean, our world has completely changed in just a couple of weeks. I mean, three weeks ago, I don't think Grace knew Han Solo from Luke Skywalker. I don't think she did. And now, uh, yesterday, and you can check this out, I urge you to do so at my Twitter feed, Zygmunt Freud, or on my Facebook page. Yesterday, she got uh, a costume, a really cool, super cool costume of Darth Vader. This was as cool as it gets. I mean, my gosh, I, I was not even a Star Wars fan when I was a kid. But if I had gotten this Darth Vader costume when I was uh, her age, I would have shit myself. <laughs> and uh, and you know she enjoyed it, and we made a little video of her in the costume, which you can find at, uh, like I said, our Twitter handle at Zygmunt Freud uh, or uh, on my Facebook page. But she is now all in. I mean, in, in just three weeks, she's gone from completely in on Disney princesses to now all in on Star Wars. And it... It's it's a little disturbing because one, it, it's you know it's a little sad to see your kid going through the stages so quickly and realizing uh oh, uh, being a teenager is right around the corner. This thing is almost over with. And little little Grace is is gone now, uh, and now we're just holding on to last vestiges. There's still some vestiges. She's in a very weird stage because uh, I mean like she'll still watch uh, Mickey Mouse Clubhouse occasionally, especially since her her little sister, two-year-old Diana, is very, very, very much into Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. So she'll she'll still watch that from time to time. But now she's totally obsessed with Star Wars uh, to the point where she's uh, watched the, you know, episodes four, five, and six, which were the first three. Go figure that one out. Uh, I've never been able to understand that. But now she's starting to get on the ones that got made after the original three the ones that made Star Wars famous episodes four, five, and six. And now I'm having to watch them because, you know, it's on all the time. And I got to tell you, 
I still don't get the Star Wars deal. I just do not get it. Apparently, George Lucas didn't even get the Star Wars deal. Apparently, George Lucas thought the original Star Wars was going to be a massive flop. And I can understand why. Because it sucks. I mean, it sucks in every possible way. I mean, even the special effects are terrible. Uh, I mean, it's almost like a cartoon movie. But look, I get that it's a cult. I get that people love it. If it gives you enjoyment, fine, fantastic. Uh, I don't understand it. But now I have to live with it. Because this is probably something that's never going away. Unlike the Disney princesses, people don't grow out of Star Wars. So now I'm I'm now <laughs> having to readjust my entire life for the next 10, 15 years based upon where Grace is going with this whole Star Wars thing. Because she is in, uh, and it is deep. Uh, and uh, you know her seventh birthday is coming up at the start of June, so maybe we'll get her back in for her uh, bi-yearly interview and understand exactly how and why this uh, Star Wars obsession has happened. Uh, she's still into the princesses. Like I said, she, she loves Princess Leia and Rey she loves, but um, she also loves that Darth Vader costume. Of course, she's scarier than Darth Vader to me at times. I've, I've seen Grace Ziegler be far scarier than Darth Vader. <laughs> even in that uh, Darth Vader costume. So check that out if you get a chance. That'll do it for this edition of the World According to Zig podcast for May 5th, 2019. As always is the case, I only ask uh, two things of you. Number one, please share this via social media, Twitter, Facebook, word of mouth, what have you. And number two, if you're one of those people who sleeps and when you sleep, you use sheets, do yourself a favor and pay attention to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed. Ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should, oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, one, two, one, two.